Uh, next, I'd like to invite uh, Ben Cochran to come forward and uh, share some of his faith story this morning. Ben is a member of uh, one of Liberty's sister churches out at New Life, and uh, he's going to be sharing some of his, uh, his story of faith. Ben, welcome. Uh, first of all, let me just say good morning and thank you for having me this morning. Uh, I, I ask your forgiveness right away for reading parts of this. I told Jeff earlier, if I don't have something written down, I will wander all over the place, and, and you'll be here three weeks from now, and I still won't be done. So I do appreciate the opportunity, though, to share what Christ has done in my life. Uh, just a small snippet of my background. I grew up in southern Chester County, uh, about an hour from here. My whole life I lived there till about six years ago, six and a half years ago, when I moved to Glenside. Uh, Early history, I, I, I graduated high school there. I, I went to a Christian college in South Carolina, which I won't mention the name of. Um, I married a Christian woman named Karen. We were married for 21 years, and we had a son. Uh, his name is Tim, who lives near us now in Glenside. From all outward appearances, we were the perfect Christian family. Um, we were very active in our church and like I said, active for years and years and years. Uh, we, we tried to serve Christ. Uh, we were the people that sit next to you every Sunday. But in all those years, I held a secret that was very close to uh, my life and who I was. And that was my addiction to pornography and to numerous uh, anonymous one-time homosexual uh, encounters, sexual encounters with men. I, I've always been taught that homosexuality is sinful. And uh, so I didn't have a problem doubting that or believing that. Uh, what I did was I internalized everything. I hid everything. I loathed the person that I, I, I knew I, I was or, or thought I was and uh, really wanted to be that person that, that I thought God would want me to be. Um, I married, like I said, when I was 23 years old. And when I got married, I wasn't honest with my wife about my struggles. And you know, you can't build a relationship on honesty. Um, actually, I wasn't honest with myself either, uh, because I told myself, okay, if sex is the problem, then once I'm married, this part will go away, won't it? Well, it didn't go away. Three weeks after we were married, I was back in the adult bookstores again. Um, do, do you know what it's like to live with secrets? Uh, some of you, I'm sure, do. Uh, I, I really applaud Liberty Church. I applaud all of you for wanting to talk about some of these difficult issues uh, in Scripture, in the light of Scripture uh, that, that our culture is dealing with today. I didn't have that open experience, though. I was taught to hide. Over the years, I sat in Sunday school classes, and we discussed things like addictions, you know, kind of in general terms, not really naming uh, the problem or the sin. Uh, many times I wanted to say, hey, that's me. I wanted to come out. I wanted to be honest about my struggles. And, you know, because of my background, I never really wanted anybody to say, hey, that's okay. You were born that way. You need to pursue the life that you were intended to be. That's not what I wanted. All I wanted was people who would come alongside me and say, hey, you don't have to hide anymore. This is what the Bible teaches. We love you. Um, that's all I wanted. Instead, you know what I heard? I'm sure you've heard this. I heard the jokes. Hey, I, I went to a church called Fags Manor Presbyterian Church for over 20 years. You're telling me we didn't hear some jokes about that church and the name. Maybe you have heard of that church. and They've dropped that part of the name. It's now Manor Presbyterian Church. 
Uh, but, but I also heard lies about how God hates homosexuals, um, how God wants them dead. I had a friend sit at the dinner table one, with me one night. I, I call this person a friend, uh, but they, that's actually what they believed. Um, I even heard a, a pastor, um, uh, this is when I was a teenager and struggling with this, he told me the story about how he had been at the bedside of a friend of mine who the only reason why his uh, addiction had been discovered is because he contracted AIDS and he was dying. And my pastor told me he was at the bedside of this man and that a homosexual in the room touched him. And my pastor got up and ran from the room. Now, where is the gospel? Where's the gospel in that? You know, but it wasn't just the attitudes about homosexuality that kept me hiding. Um, in, in church, you know, we put on our game faces sometimes. We, we pretend to be happy. We pretend to be content at peace. Uh, but there are things going on inside of us that we can't reveal. Well, I didn't see those struggles. I think that's an important part of this church. I think that's why transparency is so important to us. Because we need to see each other struggling. We need to walk alongside each other. If you see no one struggling, what you do is you tell yourself that, hey, if anybody knew what was going on in my heart, man, nobody, nobody would love me. I would be out the door. And that's happened in some churches. And, and you know, my identity was so tied into this person that I thought I needed to be that I feared rejection from those people that were around me. In fact, I've said this many times before. I feared rejection from other Christians more than anything else in this life. I feared rejection from other Christians more than I feared hell. That is an honest truth. But there was a turning point in my life. Um, that was in the year 2000. Uh, my wife died from a long illness, and uh, the grief was was horrible. I can't even begin to describe. My brother, uh, Dave White, is, is going through this type of grief, and, and it, it was just horrible. But to make it worse, I was convinced that Karen's death was God's judgment on my sin. And so, trying to, to, to find some kind of resolution, some kind of peace, I really fervently began to call out to Christ, begging him, just begging him to love me, begging him to take away my pain. And you know what? You would have thought that with that much trauma in my life that I would have changed at least. I would have stopped doing. No, just the opposite happened. I, I began to, to act out. I began to, to self-medicate more than, than I'd ever done so in my life. Um, I, I was turning to those idols we talk about. If I use the buzzwords that always delivered to give me comfort. I engaged in, in promiscuous sex um, more frequently, and, and I, I actually took more risks than I had ever taken in my life. But I continued to pray that somehow I could find my way to God or that he could find me. In Mark 9, uh, we're told of the man with the demon-possessed son, right? And uh, he, his prayer, we, we, we know, uh, Lord, I believe you can heal my son. Help my unbelief. And that became my prayer, and uh, I, I just began to pray, Lord, I, I believe that you, you, uh, I want to believe, I should say, because I didn't believe that he could love me. But I still called out to him and said, Lord, I want to believe you love me. Please help my unbelief. And you know, sometimes we think we pray once and, hey, things happen, right? 
No, they don't. Well, they do, but we don't always see them. I prayed that, and I'm telling you, I prayed it religiously for, for two years, a little over two years. And during those years, I continued to struggle in secret um, until I came to the point in my life, and I, I really don't have time to go into all the things that God did, but now I can look back and I can see, you, Lord, you were here, you were here, you were here. This is what you were doing. But I did come to the point in my life where the fear of man, it didn't matter one bit anymore. All I knew is I had to do something. I had to do something to try to find God and know his love. In desperation, I called my uh, my pastor. Actually, he had only been at our church about nine months, and I'd formed a friendship with him. And I, I called him, and I asked him to come over, and we needed to talk. And I laid it all out, and to my amazement, he didn't turn to me in disgust, because that's what I fully expected. Um, I told him I was fully prepared to take my punishment. I said, I didn't care what it was. You can drag me in front of the church. You can publicly discipline me. You can, you can deny me the Lord's table. Whatever you have to do. I said, I have, I have to know. I have to know. And it was just amazing. Because, see, I still wasn't getting it. I still didn't understand the gospel. But I began to understand the gospel when he looked at me. And he said, Ben, there's nothing else to do. There is nothing else to do. Jesus Christ took the punishment for all your sins upon him. There is no punishment left for you. Christ has done it all. In fact, he, he pointed me to Romans 2.4, which is really my, my most favorite verse in the whole Bible, where it tells us that it's God's loving kindness that leads us to repent. I had missed that. 47 years, I had missed that somehow. Something inside of me changed at that moment and for the first time in my life I, I believed this could be true that God could love me that was September 3rd 2002 first time in my life I, I truly believed and actually and it sounds a little melodramatic but it's the first time in my life where I can honestly say I felt God's pleasure I felt God's pleasure even in all that pain now Spiritual growth can't happen in isolation, can it? Um, immediately, Dave connected me with John Freeman at Harvest, and I'm still connected there today. Um, I actually uh, helped to co-lead one, one of the groups of men, and that's very encouraging to me in my walk, as well as I, I pray that God uses me to be an encouragement to them as well. But in addition, Dave asked me to talk to the session. He said, this isn't a disciplinary thing. He said, but you need people that will walk alongside of you right now, praying with you. And he asked me to speak to not just the session, but he asked me to speak to their wives, too, because he said, Ben, you need men and women to walk alongside of you. Um, there's a whole lot more in, in talking with different people. My son, um, even about a year and a half ago, where I had the chance to stand in front of that church that I feared so greatly and share my testimony. Um, but uh, one of the best uh, experiences that I've had in sharing my testimony is when I shared it with a woman I'd been out with one, on one date with, and she's sitting right here, Martha. Um, she's my wife. We've been married six and a half years now. Um, from the beginning of our relationship, she knew everything and could have walked away. Uh, you talk about God placing people in your life. 
that show you a picture of who Jesus Christ is. Um, she's it. There have been others too, but she is the most significant person in my life that's done that for me. I asked her once how she could trust me because I always looked at myself as damaged goods, you know. Um, how could you trust me? She said, Ben, I don't know if I can trust you. But I know what I can trust. I know who I can trust. I can trust the work that Christ has done in your life, and I can trust in the work that he's doing in your life. I can trust him. She is God's gift that every day reminds me of his unconditional love. Uh, Sometimes I'm asked, and uh, I've gotten used to this now, I think, if I'm still attracted to men. Uh, so what did God do? You know, that he, he take you and he just, you know, completely changed you around. You were homosexual, bisexual. Now you're heterosexual. You know, what did he do? Well, first let me say that in all fairness, I love my wife very much and I'm very committed to her. And I got, by God's grace, I have been faithful to my wife. Um, but let me make it clear that God didn't take away the desire for men and suddenly give me the desire exclusively for women. That is a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. If the measure of my success in my spiritual life is my giving up sex with men, then, hey, I've arrived. I'm successful, right? Um, But no, it doesn't work that way. The issue never really was about sex. What God gave me is a desire for him. That's what he gave me. And, And, you know, as my relationship with Jesus Christ grows... You know, it, he's, he's changing the way I think about men. He's changing the way I think about women. He's changing the way I think about sex. He's changing the way I think about every single thing in this life. Sex, as God designed it, is his gift, you know, to give us a wonderful picture of the intensely committed and, and generous way God loves us. Having tasted God's loving kindness, why would I want to go back to, to the empty and the unsatisfying life that I once knew. In fact, and I, I hadn't planned to share this because I was sitting there, the Lord just placed in my heart, my brother-in-law Stephen is in the gay lifestyle. He, he has been in a committed relationship with another man for 20 years. Uh, about two years ago on my birthday, he and his partner were married. They shared the same wedding anniversary as my birthday. So I don't, every, now, every year I, I remember... Uh, you know, as my birthday's coming up. But we had the opportunity to talk to Stephen last summer, and we were talking about some of these things and about God and, and about God's love for us and, and what God wants for us. And as a result of that conversation, uh, Stephen labeled us as homophobes. And uh, that hurt. That hurt a lot because I don't, I don't have any fear. I don't have any hatred. I, you know, it's not in my heart. But that's how he labeled us. But you know what else he told us? He told us that even though he is out of the closet, he is living in a culture, in a lifestyle that's totally open to everyone, he is tortured and miserable. His life is not satisfying. And he didn't say it's because I'm a homosexual. No. He couldn't really articulate why. We know why. It's not because he's a homosexual. It's because he does not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only source of joy, the only source of peace that we have. I thank you for this opportunity to share, and I hope that was encouraging to you. Um, Pray for Stephen. Um, Pray for Stephen.
Pray for others that you know of, uh, not just in expressing addictions to sexual areas, but that don't know the Lord, that they might come to know the joy that you have in your heart. Thank you. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things... uh, Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The word of the Lord. We're continuing our series on sexuality uh, this morning with a topic that is both immediately relevant and obviously uncomfortable to talk about in church. And if there's anything I can promise to you about this sermon is that it's going to be disappointing. Because there's no way I can answer everyone's questions. Uh, There's no way I can speak to every situation that you may know of. I want to point you to some resources that we have uh, on the back table. We've laid out a number of resources from Harvest USA, which uh, Ben referenced as he spoke. You're free to talk to Ben as well uh, during our, our after our service today, and we'd be glad to point you to some other resources. So um, I can't answer all the questions, you know, but. Let me start by telling you that the subject that we are looking at this morning is no less relevant in the first century as it is today. The people to whom Paul wrote this letter were people who lived in a city that of all the places mentioned in the New Testament is most like our city in a culture that's most like our culture. The, the, The place, the city of Corinth was known as being the sex capital of the ancient Near East. 
This was the, the sex capital of the Roman Empire. And uh, it had a temple, a very famous temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, with 1,000 prostitutes who were working around the clock to enhance the worship experience of the people who visited that temple. Um, in, in that day, C- Corinth was so known as a place where you can kind of go um, sexually nuts, go sexually bonkers, that actually the word Corinth, Corinth, Corinthianized, became a slang term for going crazy sexually. This was a place where people said, you know, we know of all kinds of sexual practice. And so Paul, speaking to this culture, speaks in, a wor- in words that are as countercultural today as they were 2,000 years ago when this letter was written. You know, I want to... I want to look with you at this passage, and, and but before I do, I want to give one warning. There's, there's a problem, there's a challenge for us as a community as we talk about the sexual ethics of the Bible. Um, one of the problems with this is that people always want to start here. If you're here this morning and you're investigating Christianity, you're looking into, you know, is this true, is this for me, then actually the sexual ethics of the Bible are the wrong place to start. That's not what Christianity is about. It's not about keeping a moral code. It's not about the sexual ethics. It's, it's about whether Jesus is really Savior. Is he who he said he is? You know, imagine this week if a friend of you, yours invited you to go help them buy a used car. And so you go to the used car lot, and your friend goes car after car, starts the ignition, and turns on the radio. Turns off the car. Goes to the next car. Starts the car. Turns on the radio. After about 10 or 12 of these... You know, she's like, this is the car I want to buy. Never drives the car. And you're like, what? You know, she's like, well, I just love the way this one sounds. This is my favorite car. I love the way the radio sounds of this one. She's like, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And yet, that's what people do with Christianity. You know, if the, the center of Christianity is Jesus Christ, who died a death that he didn't deserve to die, and was raised again, and is God incarnate, and is the one who's the center of everything for us as Christians. If that's not true, who cares what Christianity says about our sexual ethics? It doesn't matter. So my urging to you is, if you're here today and you're kind of checking this out, this isn't where we start. It's one of the dangers of of doing this series. Um, That being said, let me tell you what I'm trying to accomplish this morning. Uh, It's not my goal, necessarily, to convince you that, that homosexuality is wrong. It is wrong. But that's not really my goal. And, and my goal also this morning is not really to just um, help you to understand better what the Bible says about, about sex. The whole point of doing this series is to say, you know what? Jesus is the only thing that's worth centering your life around. You know, just as the sun is in the middle of the solar system, if you try to make some other satellite the center of the solar system, everything else kind of falls out and goes out of orbit and things collide with one another. And the whole point of doing this series is to say, sex is a beautiful gift. It's not worth being the center. It's not worth being the center. God has designed us to put him in the center. And everything everything works when it's in, in revolving around him, when the solar system is aligned around him. Um, so let's hear, let's look this morning at what God's Word tells us from this passage about homosexuality. And then, more importantly, so what? How does this matter to us? Um, let's hear what Paul does not say. First, as you look at this passage, 
we see that homosexuality is not some kind of ultimate sin. You know, it's, it's listed here as one of several things. You know, in verse 9, we read this. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. This is one of many things. And one of the dangers for us in our culture is when the Christian church has taken this as a special class of sin that's different from everything else. And it's somehow distinct and apart and, and this is taboo in a way that nothing else is. And what we see in this passage, this is one of many things. It's, it's inexcusable when heterosexual Christians describe homosexuality as, quote, an abomination to the Lord. Have you heard that phrase before? An abomination to the Lord? In the Bible, things like lying, stirring up dissension, you know, false business practices, treating people unjustly are described as abominations to the Lord. And in addition, human nature is such that all of us have plenty of talent for all kinds of sin that you would never right now think yourself capable of. One of my friends says, look, you may not be Adolf Hitler, you may not be Genghis Khan, but it's not for a lack of talent. Is homosexuality a sin? Yeah, it is. But is it a sin of a different order than anything else? No, it's one of a list. Second, look what we see here in verse 9. Paul uses a phrase here, men who practice homosexuality. And it's a term that is, it's, it's a word here that's used elsewhere in Scripture. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this was the same word that was used in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. And Paul is in effect saying, this is nothing new. I'm not introducing some new kind of teaching. I'm just reminding you of what the Old Testament says. Sometimes people like to say, Paul, that's the guy in the Bible I really hate. As if Paul was like Lone Ranger with the mask and the white stallion who rides onto the scene, guns blazing, and enforcing rules that are sort of different from anything else in Scripture. Paul is saying... All I'm doing is reinforcing what is already there in the Old Testament. One of the things that makes matters difficult for the church today is that there's a real movement of trying to say, we should be able to make homosexuality a valid, a valid choice for people from the Bible. This is actually pretty, pretty innovative. This has not been the case throughout history. Most common, for example, is the claim that denunciations of homosexuality in the New Testament are just about uh, some kind of perverse practice. And the, the, the writers of the Bible didn't have in mind the kind of long-term committed homosexual partnerships that we see today. But one thing you cannot say is this, that Paul is affirming some long-held, Paul is affirming long-held views of homosexuality that are throughout the Bible. And what he wrote is as countercultural today as it was then. These people didn't say, gosh, you know, Paul is so narrow-minded because he's, 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 this is a new teaching. They're saying, this is what the Bible teaches throughout. And the Old Testament and New Testament writers didn't go along with some bigoted kind of primitive view of homosexuality. They had in mind, there was plenty of literature to support the fact that there were long-term committed homosexual partnerships that were in that were in vogue in the first century just like they are today 
This is nothing new. One of the things that you also cannot say about homosexuality is this. You can't simply say, well, I'm a Christian, and I think that God is, feels okay about me and my choices. I'm, I'm a Christian, and I'm gay, and I think God feels good about this. You know, once you start saying, I think God thinks this, you're beginning to put words in his mouth. You have to go back to his word and say, what does God say? A Christian, you, you, how reprehensible would it be to, to us to say, a Christian who says, I believe in murder, and it's okay, and I feel like that God feels okay about me, even though I'm a Christian, I commit murder. You'd say, you're nuts. The Bible clearly says, don't murder. So you have to go back to Scripture. And finally, looking at this passage, and this, the, the vocabulary of this passage, Paul draws a distinction here that we need to hear. His vocabulary is very, very precise. There are two words to describe homosexuality that he could have used in this passage. One describes acts, actions, sinful behavior, pederasty is the word that's used in Scripture for that. Paul uses a different word here. And he uses a word that points beyond acts, beyond actions, to something much more profound, to identity. See, this is what everyone wants to say. We want to, we want to be able to separate. We do this all the time as Christians. We want to separate what we do from who we are. We want to be able to say, look, I, I'm a person who maybe I do some things over here, but they don't affect ultimately who I am. And the language here doesn't allow us to do that. Paul says, look, he lists all these categories of people and he says, he says, such were some of you. And his word there is a statement of identity. He didn't say, such did some of you. As in, you're good people, but you did some bad things, but you don't do those anymore, and now God is happy with you. He says, such were some of you. He doesn't say, some, some of you did idolatry, some of you did sexual immorality, but thank God you're done with that now, and God's happy with you and you're in. He says, no, such were some of you. It's a statement of identity. Here's the point. What you do is a function of who you are, and what you do shapes who you are. One writer says it this way. He says, it's the sea that makes a sailor. It's, a wood, it's the wood that makes the carpenter. What you do shapes who you are. In theological terms, we say this. You know, we become like what we worship. What you give yourself over to shapes your character. This is one of the reasons why I really appreciate the gay community. The gay community may be the only honest sinners out there. Do you know why homosexuality is such a difficult issue for the church? Well, one is because we've done a terrible job talking about it. But another is because in the gay community, the homosexual community says, this is who I am. This isn't just what I do. This is who I am. I can't think of anything else that the Bible says this is a sinful practice, that other people say, this is my identity. Like, you know, there's a gayberhood downtown. There's no gluttony berhood. There's no liars berhood, right? There's, there's no other area in life that I can think of that people say, what the Bible says is sinful is my identity. And it makes it, therefore, really difficult to have a conversation. But it's actually pretty close to being true. There's something about that that's right. 
Because what we do is not separate from who we are. What we do shapes who we are. And what we do, we give ourselves over to things, we become like those. You can't separate those. So when I talk to people in, in our neighborhood here, when I, I talk to people about Liberty Church, one of, the, one of the most obvious and immediate questions that comes up is, does your church welcome gays? And it's a complicated question. And I have to really listen to find out what they're asking. Because there are two answers to that question. Does your church welcome gays? And I would say, yes. Yes, we do. We've had many people who are homosexuals who have come and been a part of our community, who have come and been in our home meetings, have worshipped regularly with us, and I see that as a sign of health. Do you know why? Because it says as a church, the main thing is the main thing. You know, we don't have a litmus test. People coming in the door, we, we check off. That, you know, do you measure up to our moral code? Are you like us? I think it's a healthy thing to have a church where we say, everybody is welcome here. And we want you to be a part of our community. And we want the main thing to be the main thing. We want you to know Jesus. And for that to be central. And therefore, we don't have a little box where we vote on you. Whether you can come and participate in the life of our church. And yet, when people ask that question, are gays accepted at your church? Are they welcome at your church? That can mean something else, too. And what it can mean is, would you be a church that's going to affirm me in my lifestyle? Are you going to be a church that affirms me in the homosexual lifestyle and say, God's okay with that? And I would tell you, if, if you or a friend of yours is, is asking those questions, liberty may be a hard place for them. Because we can't say, sure, God affirms all of this. I know that's incredibly frustrating. This past week I heard a... Um, a prominent speaker within the homosexual community interviewed on the radio. And as they were conducting this interview, um, the interviewer is talking about the, the Christian line, love the sinner, hate the sin. And this guy was going nuts on this. He was like, I hate that expression. Love the sinner, hate the sin? That drives me crazy. Because it sounds like you're saying, I like the left side of you, I don't like the right side of you. You know, defining somebody down the middle. And what the speaker was saying is this. You can't separate what I do from who I say I am. And I understand why that is really frustrating. I think the phrase actually is helpful for us as long as we understand what we mean by this. Love the sin or hate the sin makes it sound like, look, I love you, but I hate you (laughs) to people. But Becky Peppard, who wrote a book called Out of the Salt Shaker, has a great expression where she talks about this. She's like, you know, the child looking at the parent who's an alcoholic doesn't hate the parent, but hates what is destroying the parent. Hates what makes their dad an angry, violent person. Intensely is angered by what mars and enslaves and destroys We have to be careful as we use that phrase. But there's something about that that is right. You know, this is very frustrating to people, but it would be frustrating if if, if we were left here. Like, you know, such were some of you. You know, you're idolaters. God's done with you. There's no hope for you. And yet what we see in Scripture over and over again is this. 
God is not done. God has a plan. And God welcomes people to himself. But everyone has to come and change. Everyone is being called in. But everyone is being invited to change. You know, we look at this passage and we look at how he says you can change it. Look, look at this phrase here in verse 12. Such were some of you, but then what happened? You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. All because of Christ. What do these three things mean? You were washed. It's pictured, what's, what's pictured in baptism. All of our filth is washed away. You are justified. God looks at you in your sinfulness. He looks at you and you're condemned in his sight. And then he looks at his son. And the blood of Jesus cries out a verdict on your life that says, you're accepted because of Jesus. And you're sanctified. Sanctified means to make holy. And there's something in this passage where he uses this as a past turns tense phrase. He says, you were sanctified. This is God looks at us in such a way that even though this is progressive in our life, he looks at it as if it's already complete. This is the way that people change. So you see, our main agenda as Christians is not to, it's not about behavior or about orientation. Our, Our goal is not to make homosexuals into heterosexuals, to make gay people straight. Orientation is much too small a word for us. Our desire, our goal is something so much larger, right? What's our goal? We want every person, every person to say, Jesus is my identity. Jesus is what I need. I've been washed. I've been justified. I've been sanctified. The goal that sometimes is communicated in the Christian church, which is about sort of fighting homosexuality or making Gay people straight is too small. It's much too small a goal. In fact, this is why I don't think that a Christian can call himself or herself homosexual or gay. Here's why. The Bible tells us that when you come to God, when you come and, and you meet Christ, there's a change of identity. The old is gone, the new has come. There's something that is that is crucified. Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And there's something new here. And I have a new identity that's wrapped up in him. That's identified together with him. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is a hard thing to live out, but your identity is Jesus. And you could say, look, I'm a person who struggles with homosexual desires. I'm a person who sometimes is confused about who I am. I'm a person who struggles for belief that God is big enough. But ultimately, my identity is Christ. My identity is Christ. This is why there's a tension that's described in the Bible all the time. What's already true and what's not yet true. Already, Jesus has died for me. He's called me to be his own. Not yet. I still struggle with sinful desires. Already I've been washed. Not yet. Sometimes the stain of sin is very evident in my life. Already I'm being called holy, perfect in God's sight. Not yet. Everybody in my home meeting knows that's not true. This is tension. 
You know, the, the main tension that we talk about with regard to homosexuality is one of orientation, nature versus nurture. And I would tell you that it's a very unhelpful discussion. The nature-nurture discussion goes like this. There's some people who seem to have been born hardwired with a predisposition, with tendencies, with an orientation that's turned toward homosexuality. Other people say, no, it's all about nurture. It's your environment. It's your upbringing. It's the way your dad treated you. It's your background. It's where you grew up. That's what defines who you are. And I would tell you that both those discussions miss the point. The Bible doesn't resolve them for us. It doesn't say nature and nurture. The Bible speaks more profoundly. The Bible speaks much more profoundly to this. See, Scripture shows us that every one of us have predispositions and tendencies that I will call an orientation toward particular sins. You know, we wouldn't say if uh, some women struggle deeply with... Um, with PMS, you know, with premenstrual syndrome. And you would not, you wouldn't say, well, it's okay for a woman struggling with PMS. She's off the hook if she beats her kids while that's going on. We would never say that. Or, you know, we would not say that a particular orientation toward alcoholism automatically makes one an alcoholic. It's just not that simple. You can't draw things. The Bible doesn't speak to this nature-nurture distinction. Instead, it calls us to do something with ourselves, to come and present ourselves to God. You know, it requires that all people come and submit all of who we are to God. So, in some ways, see, the nature-nurture thing misses the whole point. The point is not, where did my homosexual desires come from, orientation, but... Am I living in light of a new identity that God's given me? I have a new identity in Christ. Am I living in light of that? This is the call for all of us. I'm already, but I'm not yet. So look, as a church, we would say on the one hand, you know, that we would not believe or teach that people are more lost or more alienated from God because they're gay. We would not say... If you're gay, you've got to come and be straight before you can be a Christian. No, we can't do anything to affect our own hearts. And at the same time, we would say this. Every aspect of a person's life has to be brought before him. Every aspect of who we are. You know, if if we had a rich man come to our church and say, you know, if I become a Christian, how much am I going to have to give up? I'd say, no, you're missing the point. You come to Christ. You come come as you are. You come right now. And you come and you say, I can't tell you how much ahead of time you're going to have to give up. I'm saying, come to him. It's not the right question. You know, if we come to Christ and we say, God, you have all of me, but hands off this particular part of my life, we're not really coming to him. The Bible calls all of us, gay, straight, every one of us, to say, God, I come to you as I am, and I'm throwing myself at your feet, and I need you to work powerfully in my life. And I give, I lay everything open before you. Come, come mess with it. You know, we don't come with caveats, with, with bargaining with God about these things. So what does this mean? What does this mean for us as a community? Um, Paul says that some of the Christians in Corinth have been practicing homosexuals, but by God's grace, we're so no longer... You know, 
this is this means a couple of things. One is it means there's hope. That there is hope for people to be able to change. I have good friends who were in the gay lifestyle for many, many years and who have seen God work in powerful ways in their lives and they're married, have kids, some of them. God is able to do those things. In fact, I put on the, the table back there, there's a book called Such Were Some of You and it's the stories of people in whose lives God has worked powerfully in this way. But we've got to be really careful that we don't make it seem like God flips a switch. I remember um, many years ago there was a Simpsons Halloween episode. And this, the, and one of the kids had gotten a Krusty the Clown doll. Okay, And the Krusty the Clown doll had a switch on the back. And one switch, on one end it said evil and the other end it said good. And one of the kids accidentally flipped the switch. And so Krusty the Clown doll is trying to kill everybody in the house. right? So this is the, the whole episode. I've just ruined the episode for you. But um, sometimes I think that that conservatives act like that sexual orientation is just like a switch. We just need to find a way to flip the switch. And I appreciated what Ben said as he shared his own story this morning, that it's not that simple. It's not that simple. God doesn't zap people. And suddenly, I'm just attracted to people of the opposite sex. God doesn't do it like that. God can do it like that. It doesn't work like that all the time. And I think sometimes conservatives are too, honestly, too stuck in this. They've got the Krusty the Clown switch view. But liberals are also wrong on this, too. That sexual identity is not as locked in as we think it is. God has a tremendous power to change people. How do we live these things out as a community? You know... We're talking about these this morning, not just so we can have in our minds, like, what's the right way to think about these things, but so that we as a, as a community of people could celebrate what the gospel is and know how to love people well. And it calls us toward three things this morning. And the first is humility. A couple months ago, I went out, I had coffee with a friend on the 43rd floor of the Comcast building. If you've been up to the Comcast building, you can... Up on the cafe level, the 43rd floor, you're eye level with Liberty Place. I mean, it's the top of Liberty Place. You're like way high up there. And it's, it's a great view. You can see everything. And I, I loved going up there because I love like identifying places in the city I've been to. But how ridiculous would it be if you were down on the side, sidewalk below and I called you from the top of the Comcast Center and said, I am so much closer to the sun than you are. I am 430 feet closer to the sun than you are. He said, you're nuts. You know, the sun is millions of miles away. This is not, you're not really that much better. But Christians do this all the time. And your life, maybe your life, you don't struggle the way that some people do. You don't have the same orientations, some of the same tendencies. And your life is more morally put together. And you're like, you know, look, I'm 430 feet up. And you look down, they're like silly people down there. Ha ha. This is, we need to realize, this is the, the distance between us and the S-O-N, Son of God. The absolute holiness of God. All of us, no matter what kind of moral goodness that you have in your life, you're just a few feet off the ground. And it calls us to a certain sense of humility with regard to these issues. In Romans, 
Paul has this list of all the, the bad people. Here's all the bad things. Here's what all the bad people do. And it's like a sting operation. You know, you're reading along Romans and you're like, yeah, look at all these bad people. And you get to Romans chapter 2 and he says, you know what? You who can condemn others, take a look at yourself. You're exactly the same. And there's a, it's, it's, it's a little sting operation. And I find my heart trapped in this. Paul invites us in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 6, to say, find yourself in the list. Such were some of you. Idolaters, sexually immoral, thieves, liars. I can find myself several places in the list. Can you? God calls us to a measure of humility in this. To say, I need the grace of God like everyone else. Jesus also calls us to love. He calls us to love our homosexual neighbor. James says, we cannot praise God and with the same tongue curse men and women who are made in God's image. My challenge for you this morning is to get rid of gay jokes out of your vocabulary. If they're part of those, they're totally inappropriate for Christians. Or even the adjectives. You know, a gay, a, a gay book, a gay movie. We, we use that phrase in our culture to describe things that are weak or foolish. That has no place on the mouth of a Christian. Because God has called us to show love. God has called us to show hospitality to our neighbor. Even our homosexual neighbor. You know, welcome people into your homes, your lives, and your churches. Make room in your life for people who don't know him. Or who lives that maybe you're 43 floors up, but that person's at the bottom. Make room. Paul said, he chastises the church at 1 Corinthians. He tells them, look, if you want to, if you were going to avoid all kinds of people that were sinners, you'd have to leave this planet. You'd have to leave this planet. You're not going to be able to live in the same house with other people. And unfortunately, Christians have treated the gay community as lepers. One of the ways that we could see the health of our congregation is that gays are, are welcome here. They know, like, this is a church that loves all kinds of people. And it's okay. And this is a safe place. You know, one of the things that I see about our congregation is that we are not that church that's going to walk around with signs. You're nice people. You're not going to have the denounce homosexual signs. We're not that that congregation. But I see an equally dangerous problem for us. It's easy for many of us, even hearing this sermon this morning, to say, okay, Homosexuality is a sin just like any other sin. So let's kind of live and let live. You know, if this is not a big deal, if this is like anything else, then it doesn't really matter. Live and let live. We don't need to make this a big deal. But there are problems with this view of Christianity as well. Love is what we're called to. I'm a father with a bunch of children. What kind of father would you think I would be? If I I let my kids run with scissors because I didn't want to offend them by saying something. If I let them drink the things in the bottles under the sink because I didn't really want to crush their freedom of expression. What kind of father would I be if I let them play with forks near outlets just because I didn't want to get involved? See, those, that, that image of the father and the children implies relationship. 
And God has called us to be people who love with words and in truth. I want to invite you. I appreciated Ben's story about talking to his brother. And there's clearly a danger about that. But I, I want to encourage you to be bold in the way that you love. Bold in the way that you pursue people. I want to finally say that one more thing about Liberty Church. That this is a, needs to be a safe place. This has been a safe place for many of you. Some of you have come into this community and you've found yourself in the list. And you've said, gosh, my life has been shipwrecked. My life's been a big mess. And I've come here and I've found people who have loved me and accepted me and accepted me with an agenda. They said, I want to see your life changed. I want to see God show up in you. This is part of what it's for us to love. Lastly, when I was in, in high school, I played in a bell choir. And I played handbells. I know. It was very cool. And, you know, I, I, liked, I liked playing in the bell choir. I had the big bells because it made me feel very manly. But one of the things about playing the big bells is you don't get to play very often. So you sit around forever and then you finally bong, you know, that kind of thing. But I only got to play one note. When you play handbells, you play one note. And I think that it may be frustrating for some of you to come to Liberty regularly. You're like, this church is about one note. All they do is they keep ringing the same note. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all we play about. That's the only tune we know. Johnny, one note up here. Got one big bong. You know, I, I want to I tell you, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk about this as a community this morning, and I hope it engenders lots of good conversations this week, is because this is just an opportunity for us to understand Jesus. It's an opportunity for us to see how we need him and what it means to be a church that makes him central. It doesn't confuse the gospel with getting your life fixed, flipping a switch. It doesn't confuse the gospel with people having to kind of hide. But this is a church where there's a note that's played and it's the one note that's really the right song for us. It's all about him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.